All right, well, after an Advent and Christmas hiatus, we are back here in Mark. And I personally am excited to be back in Mark and continue um, our, our time here as we finish up over the next several weeks, these last few chapters of Mark. There, <clears throat> we come to an interesting text this morning because it really overlaps a lot of the themes that we saw in Christmas. There is a multitude with great anticipation Great misunderstanding for the arrival of a king, arrival who comes both in glory and humility. Very quickly, a review of Mark. I won't, I'm going to start at the beginning, but we, we won't take very long. You remember Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That, that really, we have our summary, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is Christ, Christ begins his ministry, verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And what we see then for our time in Mark is this proclamation of the gospel that the kingdom is at hand because Jesus is at hand. We see it demonstrated. We see it proclaimed. And so Mark really breaks up down into the three sections that we've talked about. Chapters 1 through about the middle of chapter 8. Who is Jesus? Concluding with that confession of Peter, indeed he is the Christ, he's the Son of God. And so that becomes the first section. After Peter's confession from the middle of chapter 8 through the end of chapter 10, where we stopped right before Advent, Jesus is on the way. He has set his face towards Jerusalem, answering the question, why has he come? What is his mission? And in that we hear the call of discipleship, that Jesus on the way calls us to mirror him being a servant of all, laying down our life, following him. We get to chapter 11, and from here to the end we have the last section, in the passion of Jesus Christ, the, the apex the pinnacle of his mission, of his destiny, all kind of comes now to a point in these last six chapters of Mark. And so that's where we find ourselves in what is commonly known as the triumphal entry. If you remember, excitement has been building for this moment. Jesus sets his face on the way to Jerusalem. And so as the travels have come, he's performed more miracles and and. There has been growing sense, a growing sense from the crowds of something unique. There's something in this man, and there's an interest. Now, they don't see him as their savior, but there's an interest in who he is. And at the same time, he's become even more pointed in his attack against the religious leaders. And so opposition has amped up on that end to the point where you can feel the tension building. If it were a movie, it would be, you know, the... the soundtrack the orchestra would be getting you all amped up something big is about to happen here as he continues this journey to the point that in chapter 10 we saw that the people as they see him they're they're amazed at his determination to go to where he's going to Jerusalem and especially because it's Passover week I mean, this is the pinnacle of, of the holy days, of, of the religious people, and he's heading right into the heart of their religion, and the crowds are growing around him because lots of people are on their journey to Jerusalem for Passover, and they are amazed or they are terrified because they haven't seen passion like this. They do not understand why he is heading like he's heading. And so we see the beginning of chapter 11 with a little bit of geography. 
It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, that is to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So Jesus was in Jericho, and he's taking the Jericho Road from chapters 10 to chapter 11. It's about 18 miles. He's on this journey. And as he's coming and heading towards the east of the city, he's making his way, and you come to Bethany, which is under two miles from Jerusalem. And Bethany is heading up the Mount of Olives. You come and, and towards the top of the Mount of Olives, around its side a little bit, is Bethany. And so he arrives at Bethany. If you were to continue on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem, you were to continue on it, there's a little sort of hamlet that goes down the, the side of, of Mount of Olives and would butt up against Jerusalem. And so we begin our story here as he stands in Bethany on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city, seeing the edge of the city, beginning his journey down. Now the other Gospels include another story in here of him being at Mary and Martha's house and the raising of Lazarus. They live there in Bethpage and Bethany in that area. So Jesus would have been familiar in this area. And he makes his way into the city. Mount of Olives, you have to understand, is a looking through the Old Testament and the prophecies, the Mount of Olives is a, a significant location messianically. That, that it is in the Mount of Olives that we look forward to the eschatological or just the, the end times, the coming of the glory of God. That the glory of God will be revealed to his people, will be manifest, and that's often connected with the Mount of olives. In fact, Zechariah, all through his prophecy, speaks this way. You get to chapter 14 of Zechariah, and he talks about the coming of the king. Zechariah 14, when he comes, he'll bring judgment. He will bring deliverance. Listen to just a couple verses from Zechariah 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And so Mark is intentional here in speaking about the geography as Jesus comes to Jerusalem of this messianic prophecy that's being fulfilled. And then in our text, it's interesting, if you were to see my notes, the, the title of this section is just called Donkey. <laughs> Jesus spends a, Mark spends a lot of time giving instructions about this fool, this donkey, he tells them where to go, where to find it, how they'll find it, what this, this, this cult should be like, and, and how they should take it, and how they should answer people. And <clears throat> so he spends a lot of time speaking about this. You know, perhaps Jesus knows by divine sovereign wisdom that th this animal is going to be here. Or perhaps, which seems likely to me, he had made plans ahead of time for this donkey to be here. Again, it's in Bethpage. He knows that area. He spent time there. But whatever the reason is, he's very specific. And the reason Mark labors like he does to give you so much detail is because there's three prophecies that are fulfilled here. And in the fulfillment of these prophecies, they point to us that this is the plan of God from the moment he promised to, to Adam and Eve that he would send a deliverer, 
For the next centuries upon centuries, as the prophets foretold, this has been the plan of God to send Jesus, his son, to send the conquering king to be the Messiah of his people. If you were to look at Zechariah again, Zechariah chapter 9, as we said, it's all about the arrival of the king, the arrival of the presence of the king through there. And in chapter 9, there's sort of this epic language used of, of war and, and, and God coming in power. And Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The other Gospels, as they tell the story, they actually quote Zechariah 9 here. Mark is always a bit more subtle, it seems, in his messianic secret and kind of always churning below the surface as who is this Jesus. But in this detail, we see this is the coming Messiah. This is the one, the king that has been promised to bring salvation. He's telling us the day of the Lord is at hand. Judgment, salvation is at hand. Your king is coming and he's riding on a donkey, on a colt. You'll see also that he emphasizes the point that it needs to be a colt, a donkey that's never been ridden before. One that has has never been yoked. One that has never carried someone or carried uh, mundane burdens on its back. Uh, As you read the Old Testament, something that grows out of the Old Testament you see is that for important purposes when there's something a sort of a divine important purpose with something that a beast of burden a horse a donkey whatever it might be they need to find a beast of burden that has never been ridden before that has never been used for mundane things that is set apart in a sense it is sanctified for a divine purpose as a divine mission a divine purpose if you want to jot a couple references down numbers 19:2, deuteronomy 21 3 1 Samuel 6, 7, they all speak to this idea of of a beast of burden that is sanctified, set apart for a divine, a holy purpose. And so again, highlighting, this is just no ordinary man arriving in some ordinary way. This is the divine mission. The, The day of the Lord is at hand here. He's entering on a donkey and one that has never been ridden before, that is set apart for this holy, divine purpose. Then finally, as you heard Jim read read the passage, maybe you uh, heard him talking about when it's tied up, it'll be tethered, and when you untie it, and they ask you if you tie it, and they keep using this word, this tying and this tethering of donkey, again, pointing us to a third prophetic word, one that goes all the way back to Genesis, where Zechariah's own prophecy would be rooted in. in Genesis 49, you're coming towards the end of the Joseph narrative. And in there, Jacob is getting older, and he is going to bless his sons and, and promise restoration, give them a, a promise and a blessing. And so Jacob's oldest son is Reuben, and, Jesus, and Jacob passes over Reuben, the blessing, because of the sin in his life. The same is true for the next Levi and Simeon. The next two, Jesus passes over them. But then he comes to Judah, the fourth son. And he gives this blessing. He bestows this blessing upon Judah. In Genesis 49, just listen 
to these verses. I'll begin in verse 8. Verse 9, sorry. Judah is a lion's lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt, Tethered to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, in his vesture, in the blood of grapes. He promises Judah, I'm going to restore my people. And in this promise to Judah, this reference to the lion, out of Judah will come a lion. And when he has the scepter, it will never be taken from his hand. The staff will be planted firmly. He will be king of kings and and it will be restored forever at that time. His kingly ruler. And he ends there, and you will know this, because I'm going to bind this donkey, this foal, this calf to the vine. I will tie this donkey up. And the imagery is here that when they come and that Jesus instructs them, take the coal, the fool that is, that is bound, untie him and bring him to me. The king is here. The lion of the tribe of Judah is here. And they untie the colt because he's about ready to mount it and to enter into Jerusalem. So you have this, all of this prophetic word that is is emphasized here in the way that Mark is telling the story. And it encourages us with this truth that God has planned from eternity past. God has brought forth in history. There is no mistake. His mission and plan to send the Savior to save us. But what love the Father has shown to us that He would send His Son to save us. And then we look at our own lives. He's given us a son and and we see the details in which God is orchestrating this. And and we think, man, indeed we can entrust the details of our lives to that good and sovereign God. Jesus Christ then now enters Jerusalem on this donkey, all this messianic fulfillment, fulfillment. So that we see his entrance. We move down in our passage as he enters The disciples still don't fully grasp what's taking place, but they understand something special is happening and they they put their cloaks over this donkey in a a way of honor, honoring him as a a king. The people that have been following see this and they take their own cloaks and coats and they run up to catch up with Jesus where he is. There's people waiting him. They throw their jackets down on the ground. They take the palm branches, the palm trees, or the palm branches and, and throw them down on the ground. That's where, you know, Palm Sunday, where that comes from. And in, Jesus comes as a king on a humble donkey, being honored by the people as he enters into Jerusalem. Again, this took place. It fulfills the both prophetic words and their, the songs of hope that would have filled the people. You think Isaiah 55 talks about the branches clapping their hands as the king enters. You think of them waving those palms. The Psalms, they sing about the branches crying out in praise at the coming of the king. 
And here he comes. And then you see this kind of uh, reflective song of praise, responsive song of praise that goes forth as, as the people see Jesus entering and it all breaks out from the Halal Psalms, which are Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They're really quoting from Psalm 118 as they sing here, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it would have been chanted back and forth. You could see it as it lays out there in verses 9 and 10, back and forth, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Then back to the other side. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Back to the other side. Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna literally means save us. Save us now. And they cry out as the king comes and salvation. And then we get to verse 11, and it's this real anticlimactic finish to our text. It says, He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Suddenly it seems as if no one's around. <laughs> There's this big momentous moment. People are waving branches, throwing their coats on the ground, getting all hyped up, and all of a sudden it seems like the crowd has fizzled away. They've, they're finding their places to stay, getting ready for the week's activity of Passover. And it's almost as if Jesus finds himself alone. A momentary swell of excitement. Let me just make a side application here. I think we, we see this here for a reason. Of it's easy as followers of Christ to, to get caught up in a momentary sort of swell of excitement. You have a great service, a great week, something you kind of get, maybe for the team, that sort of camp experience where you're on a real high, everything kind of builds up, and it's easy to confess Christ in that moment. But you know, when the going gets hard a couple days later, and then at the cross, it's a whole lot harder to confess Jesus Christ in those moments. But that's what true discipleship is, is confessing Jesus Christ at the cross, you know, I pray often for our church, for myself, <clears throat> not to be too up and down. Early on in ministry, I made this huge mistake of like judging the church, my worth, God's work, everything at like one o'clock on Sunday. <laughs> and either it was like, that was a great service, we had a good crowd, I, my sermon was amazing, you know, everything. Or it was like, that was awful. I don't know. No one was paying attention. I don't even know what I was saying. It was terrible. This, and you just kind of... And the, the reality is that the Christian walk is a, a much more of a, a marathon. It is not so much the swells and the amazing moments and the down. It's just that daily going after the Lord. Those the small steps of growth. And perhaps you have moments where it, the, you know, spirit just really works in your heart and you see a big moment of growth over a short season. Those happen at times. And, but that we wouldn't be people that when things are going up, hey, we're the loudest in the church and we're so happy. But as soon as it gets difficult, we're bailing. But that we would be confessing Christ at the cross, at the foot of the cross. That's where we would stay. And so Jesus arrives 
at the temple. <clears throat> Reality, though, is this is anything but anticlimactic. Look how the verse reads. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You can imagine him. He looks around. He sees the structure. He sees the outer courts where the Gentiles were allowed because they weren't allowed any further in than those outer courts. Sees the inner courts, the, the holiest places where only the priests would be allowed to go. The veil hanging where they would offer the sacrifices, where everything was about to take place on this Passover week. As he looks around, he takes it all in. The temple really becomes both the geographical and theological center to the story for the next several chapters. If you remember the history of the temple or the tabernacle, really the sanctuary of God, it begins in the garden, right? That is the sanctuary of God where he dwells with his people. And in the garden there is shalom, that peace in the presence of God, of, of joy, of, of fulfillment, of flourishing. In that sanctuary there's no decay, there's no death. But then we lost the sanctuary. We lost that temple as it were. It's Adam and Eve's sin and they look for shalom somewhere outside of God. And they're expelled from the sanctuary. And you remember, the Lord puts a flaming sword there. Because they cannot come back into the sanctuary. Into the shalom of God unless they pass through the flaming sword. And no one can make it under that flaming sword. The sword there, it represents divine justice. Its payment will always be exact. So the Lord in his mercy gives the, the people the tabernacle and in the midst of the tabernacle, in the middle is the, the holy of holies and a priest by blood sacrifice can enter once a year and, <clears throat> and only in certain ways and certain... And so we have this, this shadow of them coming into the Shekinah glory but it's only partial. It's only the high priest as a representative in, in this way always continually offering these blood sacrifices. We have the temple that is built and it's glorious and it looks beautiful and it serves as the center of their life, but still, still you have the sword, the flaming sword. How do you get into the presence, the sanctuary of God, without coming under the sword? We have Christmas story. We just have rehearsed it again and again. Jesus coming to earth, God with man. Or as John would say, he has come and he dwelt among us, literally. You've heard it before. He's tabernacled among us. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. God with us, but there's still the flaming sword. Who's going to come under the sword and so that we can find that shalom, that, that sanctuary with God? Well, I'm getting ahead of us a little bit. You know where the story's going as we look backwards. Jesus Christ, he's come to the pinnacle of his mission as he stands in that temple. And you can imagine him looking around what about to come over the next days. As he's about ready to come under the flaming sword of the Lord. 
and he will experience its pain and its wrath. But in Jesus Christ, when that sword strikes, that sword shatters. And that's the veil rent in two from top to bottom. And access, sanctuary, shalom with God is won back for us by Jesus Christ coming under the flaming sword. Jesus Christ cut off from the land of the living, the lamb who was slain. It is the death of death. You remember Mark, and I'll conclude with this, Mark begins with these geographical points here. In 586, the prophet Ezekiel has a prophetic vision. If you remember, during that time is around the time of the exile of the Judah to Babylon and the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And Ezekiel has this prophetic vision. And in his vision... He sees the wicked coming in and destroying the wicked. That is God's disobedient people. They turn from God. They're wicked. The wicked are destroying them. There's wickedness everywhere. And he sees the city being brought low. And Ezekiel sees in that moment, in the vision, the temple. And in the temple, in its center, the Holy of Holies. And in his vision, the Shekinah glory of God, the glory of God ascends from the temple. And it raises out of the Holy of Holies. And it raises above the temple. And it says it makes its way, leaves through the east end of the city. And the glory of God, as Ezekiel sees it in his prophetic vision then, goes through Bethpage and ascends the Mount of Olives. And rests in Bethany. And so in 586, Ezekiel tells us this vision of God's feet, the glory of God planted firmly on the Mount of Olives, removed from the temple, removed from Jerusalem, removed from the people of God, overlooking the city as judgment comes. Some 600 years later now, Mark tells us Jesus made his way up the feet of the Son of God standing on the Mount of Olives. And he descends that mountain and he makes his way into the east gate of Jerusalem. And he makes his way to Jerusalem. And where does he go? Where does he stand? He returns to the temple. And Mark is telling us the glory of God has returned. Jesus didn't come to reform the temple. He didn't come to, to reform its programs, to bring some renewal in that sense. He came as its prophetic answer. He was its fulfillment. He was its replacement. He has tabernacled. He has templed among us. The glory of God is in our midst in the person of Jesus Christ. And when Christ stands in that temple and looks everywhere, it harkens back to Ezekiel's prophecy from the Mount of Olives, he has come and he has returned to the temple. And right now, as the people of God, the truth is, Jesus Christ is in our midst. <clears throat> Revelation tells us that. He walks about in the midst of his candlestick by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is in our midst. 
The peace of God is with us. That should swell some sort of joy and gladness in your heart. That should produce some sort of fear and amazement. It certainly should encourage us and strengthen us. God has sent his son and because of that he came under the flaming sword and Christ is in our midst. Just a moment we'll partake of the table. Christ in our midst. The spiritual presence of God for us to be nourished and strengthened on. Let's take a moment. I'll pray and then we will transition to the table of the Lord.